Well, folks, yes, yes. It is so wonderful to be with you all in our classroom. And this episode is unique because I have a collective. This is, y'all know this is the first time I've interviewed this many people at once. <laughs> and so this is exciting for me. I, I have a collective of professors, of folks from the University of South Carolina who published this wonderful book, Revolutionary Love, Creating Culturally Inclusive Literacy Classrooms. Y'all going to learn today. And so we have uh, a number of individuals who are joining me, and I'm going to let them state their names and share about themselves because I'm learning just as you are. And so welcome, welcome, welcome um, to our classroom. Thank you for being here, Natasha, Elisa, Michelle, Kamanya. If I and if I didn't pronounce your name wrong, please correct me. I'm here to learn. Uh, but I want to start. <clears throat> I want to start by having you tell us a bit about who you are and how you all came together to co-author the book Revolutionary Love. All right, I'll just oh, oh go ahead. <laughs> Well, I'm just going to say my name is Kamanya Wintahoy. I'm an associate professor at the University of South Carolina in the early childhood unit. And um, we came to this work. I'll let everybody introduce themselves and then describe how we came to this work. Yes, yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm Michelle Myers. I'm assistant professor at Wake Forest University. Welcome. I'm Eliza Braden, an associate professor of elementary education at the University of South Carolina. I'm Natasha Thornton, founder and lead consultant of Thornton Educational Consulting. Thank you all. Thank you all for being here. How, how did you come to this work? How did you come to this collaboration? All right, because you have a number of individuals on this project. And I, I believe we have one person missing. Yes. And so, and absent is San Juana Rodriguez of Kent State. She's an associate professor of early childhood education at Kent State uh, University. Um, but how do we get to this work? Um, let's see. Well, <laughs> we're all connected. It's by design. It was meant to be. I'm gonna say that first. Um, Natasha, Kamanya, and Sanwana and I, we actually have history. We all completed our degree, our PhD, our doctoral degree at Georgia State University in Atlanta, Georgia. And um, we matriculated, we went through the program all at the same time, graduated the same year. <laughs> and now uh, Kamanya and I work together at the University of South Carolina. And Michelle, who was formerly at the University of South Carolina, is now at Wake Forest University. Um, she and I were in the same um, education, elementary ed program. Um, and Eli, um, Michelle and Kamaya and myself, we actually co-authored and we were in another joint um, book um, called Reading Revealed. And through that, um, we were approached by um, Scholastic and some others to think about authoring a book around um, 
this work, the work that we're doing. Um, and of course, uh, San Juana and Natasha were um, definitely joined in with us because they are doing the work in their spaces um, in Atlanta, in, in, in North Georgia um, as well. And so this is how this collective um, came together. But it, we know it's, it's by design um, that we were all meant to be together in doing this work. And let the church say, Amen. Really beautiful. I love that, Eliza, how you just kind of mapped everything out. I could picture it as you were describing it. And it's truly like this book is a collection of all of our stories, our professional mm-hmm. journeys, our educational journeys, our collaborations, what we've learned from the teachers we've worked with, from our collaborations together and our processes um, in revolutionary love. And I, Eliza, I just love how you mapped that all together. <laughs> yeah. And I appreciate what y'all did in the intro in terms of having photos of of your family members and giving those captions that give us a little bit of context into who you are, uh, who who your family is, and and in some cases, a little bit about not too deep, but a little bit about, you know, your history and and your connection and what influences this work and uh, noticed some cultural pieces that that were mentioned. There. Actually, there were cultural pieces for for each of your captions, uh, mm-hmm. and so thank you for doing that. As a reader, it helped me feel a little bit more connected to to you as authors. Y'all like the Golden State Warriors strength in numbers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get one, but you can get five. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the more, the merrier. That's right. <laughs> now, 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 tell me. Who is this book written for? So we like to think that this book is written for every teacher, every administrator, anyone that's responsible for cultivating and teaching and growing teachers, right? And the reason we say every, because we know that educators enter this work um, around cultural inclusiveness at various points. So um, you may have some teachers that are already engaged in critical reflection. They are aware of their biases. They know how deficit beliefs impact children. And so they are in a state of continually doing that work, but they may need help with um, really centering student lives and reading and writing workshop or navigating mandates or practices um, that really don't affirm their children. So they may need um, some more support around the practical piece and what does this look like and in our book we have a number of examples of teachers um, that have done that work teachers that have collaborated with some of the authors in the book to do that work and so we provide insight on that um you may have some teachers that like are wrestling with beliefs they may be aware that they have deficit beliefs they may not be aware some that may be ready to do that work of disrupting we hear out here you know you got to examine your beliefs you got to shift but how do you do that right and so this book is also for those um, teachers. We have a lot of critical reflection exercises. Um, we, in addition to that, we have um, like the historical context around the ways des- deficit narratives have shaped around Black and Brown communities. We have um, information around policies that were designed to marginalize Black and Brown communities. And when you know that, right, what has shaped those beliefs and what um, was undergirded that, you have more knowledge and more insight to shift, right, make those changes. So this book is for those folks, we have a lot of um, information to really help wherever you are um, in the process. 
And so wherever you land in your work around cultural relevance, because it all varies, um, this book is for you, especially if you teach black and brown children. But we also want to make sure um, we're clear that um, if you teach predominantly white children, if you have one or two black kids or no black kids in your class, this book is for you also because the way that you honor, the way that you affirm, the way that you respect um, the lives and cultures of um, black and brown communities impact the way your students will um, embrace those um, communities as well. And one thing that Kamanya um, likes to say, she says that like no matter who we teach racially, ethnicity-wise, socioeconomically, um, disability-wise, every student that we teach will grow up to be adults, right? And who will either um, sustain or disrupt racism. And so the way that we um, embrace and honor and advocate for Black children, Black and brown children, um, really impacts our future. So again, this book is out for absolutely everyone. We have information and tools that everyone can use, no matter where you are on your journey. You know, listening to you is inspiring a question that I had not considered before, which is, what are y'all experiencing with this book amidst the book banning movement? Is it impacting revolutionary love? Is it impacting your ability to get it in schools, get it in the hands of school leaders, get it in the hands of teachers? I'm curious. Well quite interesting that you asked that question. We originally wanted to have the word anti-racist um, in the title. And while we were drafting and, and revising the book is when the banning started happening. And, you know, we had to come to it. Like we really had long conversation on, you know, what did we want to do? And in order to make sure, you know, to try and make sure that most teachers, many teachers as possible had the hand in the books, we had to get get rid of that word anti-racist anti teaching, right? But so I think that we just had, we, we have to play chess, right? And, and not checkers. And I think that, you know, the work doing is nothing new to what the work that has been going on, you know, in black and brown communities. And the legislation that's coming out is nothing new, right? It's just something that we have to learn how to respond to, how to think and how to plan and, and how to strategize and how to get the work done, even when people are trying to prohibit it. This is not new, like, and our people just fought, found other ways to fight. And that is what that's what we're going to do and continue to do. Well, listen, I played chess on the middle school chess team at the A.B. Brew School in Lawrence, Massachusetts. So you don't have to convince me. OK, OK, OK. <laughs> Michelle, what yes. is revolutionary love and what does it look like in action? So for me, I'm going to, um, you know, expound on some of the things that we we write in the book. Um, and what I believe that revolutionary love is, it's not a theory, right? It is action. I believe that it's important for us to gauge, to engage in the kind of actions that's going to produce the kind of world that we want, that is going to be just, a world that is going to be equitable for the kids that we're currently teaching, for the legacies that we plan on leaving. And so loving our students through a revolutionary approach means that we're seeing them and then we're fighting against the systems that are inherently oppressive as well as dehumanizing. And we we've talked about this, like, you know, what Tasha said, as well as what Kamaya just espoused on, like, this is nothing new. This is work that we're going to continuously do because it's important. 
And so I believe, you know, as teachers, we have to understand that there will always be policies, that there are going to always be laws. There are always going to be practices that place black and brown students in at a disadvantage. But it's up to those brave teachers who understand the importance of love is action, not just a feeling or an emotion that we fight against or we disrupt these kinds of systems and practices. And so you, we draw, when we were writing this book, we drew on scholars of color that had been doing this work years ago, decades ago, such scholars as, you know, Lisa Del Pitt, Geneva Gay, Jacqueline Jordan Irvine, Gloria Latson Billings, um, Louise Malls, all of this, Dr. Gloria Beauty, you know, we, we've looked at those, those people doing the work and making sure that this work got in the hands of people who were in classrooms doing the kind of practice that we want to see happen in every classroom. And so some of the things that we think are important in doing this work, we believe that teachers who actually cultivate revolutionary love, they do this when they honor the humanity the intelligence, the ethnicity, as well as the racial and linguistic identity of their students. So they are not afraid to truly see their students for who they are. Thank you so much, Michelle. Um, Just to add to what you're saying, you know, about seeing students for who they are racially and ethnically, you know. Um, So revolutionary love is like beyond when teachers say, like, I don't see color, you know. I love all my kids, whether they're black, white, purple, or pink, right? So revolutionary love is takes a critical lens and thinking about what Dr. Gloria Boutte wrote in the forward when she drew on our ancestor Toni Morrison words that said, love is or love ain't then love ain't love at all, right? So revolutionary love is thick, it's informed, and it's transformational. And how does revolutionary love look in action? What we did in the book, for every chapter, we exactly show you how it looks in action, how revolutionary love looks in action. So for example, we have a chapter about doing self-reflection, right? So how does revolutionary love look when you're doing the ongoing work, right? It never ends critically looking at yourself and your experiences, you know, no matter who you are, whether you are a white person or whether you are a person of color, we all have been socialized, right, in this colonized world, right? And then in the chapters, as far as community, we have how does revolution every little look in building class and communities? How does it look for a reader's workshop and writer's workshop? Like, even if you have mandated scripted programs, how can we still embody revolutionary love? And we feature many classroom teachers to show samples of how it looks. Yeah, I appreciate that y'all do that. I think teachers would appreciate that. Sometimes, sometimes some of this work that we engage in and and the conversations we engage in and even the text that we read could be more theoretical and not practical enough for teachers to be able to like, all right, I'm in the classroom at, you know, Mm -hmm. eight o'clock on Monday. I got to be able to implement this stuff. Like I want to do it, but I don't understand exactly how to do it. And so I, I love this very practical approach that you take. Uh, on that note, and can I add? Engaged, you can, oh, you can. Quickly, <laughs> I just, I, I just wanted to say, I think what sets our work apart is we, when we engage with teachers in classrooms, we're not just a, uh, an observer. Mm-hmm. We're not going in just researching them. Um, we live the work beside teachers as well. So we are not, um, this is just not some research and we are just sharing that research and, um, and we're 
from afar, it's like a lens, you know, um, we're looking in, we're on the ground as well. And so I think that is what makes our book stand stands out from others' professional texts is because we're living side by side in classrooms. We engage in ongoing work inside classrooms, spending a lot of time with teachers and students and families as well. Absolutely. Um, I think we have a perfect mix. And it just kind of sums what everybody was saying of theory and practice, right? You just can't have all theory where it's um, not applicable, but you just can't have strategies where there's no meat or nothing to mm-hmm. undergird you when you got to, you know, make those moves and think, um, you know, deeply about what the next steps are, right? So it's a perfect blend of both. Um, and I, I like to say, and because it's a perfect blend of both, um, revolutionary love is just not a set of practices or strategies. It's who you are. It's an abetment of your beliefs, your knowledge, and your practices. Um, and yeah, I think what everyone said just kind of is 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 um what I'm saying um just kind of summing it all up. Great mix of theory and practice, and it's who you are. Well, your book engages the reader in numerous self-reflection activities. Which one do y'all think is the most impactful? So for me, I, I I believe that the, you know, the first few chapters that, you know, ask our readers to do self-introspections are the most fundamental to the work because it asks them to do a deep excavation of their ideas, their beliefs, you know, the biases that they hold, the stereotypical views that they may have. Some of them are, you know, on the unconscious level, like they don't even know that they're operating with those beliefs about the students that they're teaching until they do this honest, deep excavation or self-introspection and then look at, you know, what it is that they hold. How have they been socialized into accepting these things as truths about people who might be different from them themselves? I know that um, in the chapter in the you know, I think it's chapter two where, you know, Natasha and I, we share how this has impacted us by doing this self-introspection and looking at, oh, I have these beliefs and now this is impacting the work that I'm doing with kids and I'm claiming that I am doing the best work. Well, no, not if I'm holding these negative beliefs about kids who may be, you know, at a different socioeconomic or kids who may have a different linguistic ability that's important. So when we look at this, we, we make sure that we give them plenty of activities or engagements that they can do to do deep, honest, reflective um, thought about what it is you believe. You know, what are the biases that you hold? How has that influenced your way of seeing and engaging with kids? And then it's through that that we say, when you know better, you do better. And so the things that we ask them is just, you know, take that deep, honest, reflective approach. And we build those kinds of engagement throughout the book. So it asks them to pause and take an opportunity to think at, you know, about how are you privileging, you know, students who are speakers of English or how are you, you know, engaging with families in a way that's um, on a traditional norm of a two-parent home and what else could be considered families. So we do this work um, with, the, with the hope that it will promote the kind of teachers 
who live into the beliefs of revolutionary love, that it's a part of who they are. And that just comes with us being true to ourselves. So for me, that's the, that's the chapter. Yeah, and y'all structured it really well. It's, it's designed in a way where professional learning communities can just pick it up and go, you know, really take the time to work through the book. Like on the beginning with the self-reflection activities, you kind of, you gave them a softball to start out with, with the identity web. And then, you know, there's a progression there that eventually takes them to, uh, you did the labeling dimensions, but then you get into the stereotypes. And that's when, you know, folks start to get a little more uncomfortable. Oh, stereotypes, wait a second. You know, looking at your own biases and whatnot. That's, That's good, good stuff. Yep. And they had to be comfortable with having these uncomfortable conversations, right? If we want to make changes, if we continue to have comfortable conversations uh, about things that we're not paying attention to, then we're going to continuously have issues that we're going to need to address. But we have to be comfortable with having uncomfortable conversations. And so, you know, when I do this work with, you know, teachers in teacher ed or in book clubs, you know, I say to them, just get used to being in an un- um, in an uncomfortable space, but don't check out, still engage and think about why is this uncomfortable for you? And as educators, we all know that discomfort means that you're learning, right? This equilibrium, right? So for example, if you're learning how to speak a new language, right? If you travel to another country and that's the language you have to speak, you're going to be uncomfortable, but you know that, okay, I want to access certain things, so I'm going to have to learn it, right? If you're learning how to drive a vehicle for the first time, ride a motorcycle for the first time, ride a bike for the first time, you experience discomfort, but because you know you want to learn this skill, you stay the course, right? So we're doing this for the children like Dr. Boutet says. Yeah. I think ODB from Wu-Tang said that also. I'm um, sure he did. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all are like the Wu-Tang of professors. I'll right? take you. Coming yeah. together and um, <laughs> I have a, you know, I, I have a lot of group analogies for y'all. Um, all right. So if a reader only had to had time to read one chapter in the book, Revolutionary Love, which one would it be and why? And, and maybe, well, I know your answer, Michelle, um, because you, you kind of just said it, you, you know, said the most yeah. important work is that identity work at the beginning. But, you know, somebody else might have a different take. You know, if there was one chapter, is it chapter one or, or is there another chapter that you feel like, you know what, you know, this is it. If you only had time to read one chapter, which one would it be? I think um, I would say it would have to be the chapter in which you engage in the introspection activities. Um, but all the chapters are good. So we can't just choose. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. The I agree. They're all, they're all the best. As the kids used to say back in the day, the bomb. Um, but you because as you're doing this work you where you find yourself discomforted a discomforted triggered um there are spaces where you might see that you really need to go deeper in certain areas so a teacher might leave those chapters in the beginning and say you know i have to think about what I'm doing in regards to language. I have denied my my students, my black and brown students, 
um, opportunities to include their native languages, their home languages, their use of African-American language, their use of Mexican-American language in my classroom. So based off where you are, for me, um, it was an unawareness on how I perceive my Latin students as a teacher, as a teacher or classroom educator. So I had to open up my eyes. And so I might begin there. I would engage in those first few chapters, but I will go straight over to how we position starting with the brilliance of students' cultures, then going straight into what does it look like to um, understand the nuances of colonization and how colonization attributed to um, the eradication of of, of students' languages and their rights to their language in schools, and then how that looks like to teach students about their language and their culture um, side by side, to move in and out between standardized English or mainstream American English and move back to their native language and then move from their native language to standardized English in a lesson. So I would begin there. So, um, but another teacher might say, I have not worked really, I've done that introspection and I have not done a really great job of including families um, in my classroom. And so, and especially around uh, including families and writers workshop and how can I engage in intergenerational storytelling. Um, and so we share that in chapter, in the final chapter as well. So I say all the chapters, but all I would say at least begin with the initial chapters around introspection first. Then you can move from there. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about it from the marketing perspective, right? That if you're trying to hook someone or a group of people, right? Get them subscribed to your email list or whatever the case may be all right, you know, what's the one thing I'm going to pull from my book? What is the excerpt from my book that's going to hook them in? And it sounds like, you know, the this first chapter, the initial chapters are an excerpt on some of that um, introspective work would be the hook that y'all would use to, to capture folks and push them to, you know, ultimately, obviously, purchase your book, read your book, and implement the... Um, many suggestions and strategies that y'all offer them. So I want to give each of you, Natasha, you want to chime in? Yeah, I just wanted to say also a hook um, is that we are so transparent and vulnerable in our book, right? How Eliza just talked about how she had to go through some beliefs about um her students. Um, I talk about in the first chapter how me being a black woman at a predominantly black school, the deficit beliefs I had and how I had to shift. So um, I think those are hooks because you want to know like somebody else is experiencing or thinking these things that may not just be right. Right. You want to, you know, also know the juice like she thought that what, you know, and so you read it and it's but it's a um a place to go. It's a model like for vulnerability, for openness and honesty. And we don't ask our readers to do anything that we haven't done. So if you want to see what that introspection like truly looks like, we provide some personal examples and we just hope that they are, um, you know, um, um, opportunities or spaces for teachers to go and get hooked to um, start that work. Yep. Yeah. And I, I did notice that y'all 
in early on in the book and mentioned how you basically had to rewire the way you see, think, understand, experience schooling, right? Based on how y'all came up, based on your uh, individual experiences with, with schooling, which, you know, a lot of it was aligned, right? There's certain things that most of us um, experience and as a result understood that, you know, school schools are supposed to operate in a particular way. Um, so y'all talked about kind of the, the rewiring and new understandings and, and as a result, the new approach or a different approach. Um, new in the sense that it's not necessarily embraced widestream, right? That that's why y'all wrote this book because there's there's still a lot of work to do to get people on board with understanding the importance of this notion of revolutionary love. There's still a lot of work to do to support people in creating culturally inclusive literacy classrooms, uh, and there's there's still a lot of resistance out there. We know that. Um, but this is an opportunity for y'all to encourage the audience. Yeah. And so I want to hear from each of you. What is your message of encouragement to our listeners? So I'll start. Um, so I always like to share something um, that um, Dr. Itihari Toure, or some know her as Mama Itihari, says. She says that when you enter, educators enter the presence of Black and brown children, your soul should leap for joy. So when we look in the faces of our babies, our soul should leap for joy, right? Um, and if they don't leap for joy, you need to get our book and do some of that internal work, right? But if they do leap for joy, then your work is divine. You know that it's bigger than lesson plans. It's bigger than standards. It's bigger than mandates. We are talking about the lives of children and their well-beings are at stake. And so when you are doing the work and you have to maybe navigate for something that's standard um, in the curriculum, but it brings joy to your students. It builds their confidence. It builds their competence, it affirms them in their identity, then keep doing the work because that joy that's in your soul is at the joy, um, is at the foundation of revolutionary love. And, and I'll, I'll make, I'll make it quick. This has always been my teaching philosophy. A child doesn't care how much you know until a child knows how much you care. That has that has guided all of the work that I've done. And so if you do not operate in a stance of where you're truly acting in actions that present that child's full humanity, then you are not teaching that child. And so I'll, I'll leave it at that. So make sure that a child knows, knows, not has to guess about, but knows how much he or she is loved in your classroom. Okay, so we got uh, our soul should be jumping for joy when we encounter black and brown kids. We're talking about full humanity and they got to know that you care. Who's up next? I like to quote the Ubuntu philosophy, I am because you are. And so this book is not just for teachers if you have black and, and brown students. This book is also for students, for teachers who have majority white students, right? Because 
it is not black and brown children who are committing these offenses on themselves, right? So I am because you are. Like we cannot be human until everyone sees us as as human. So this work is is collective, right? This work is community. This work is going to take uh you know, not just us doing this work. So I would like to, you know, say a special shout out to teachers who are who are teaching majority white schools. This work is for you as well. Um, uh, and because you are, y'all are like the Boston Celtics of professors. <laughs> Doc, Doc Rivers used to use that. He used to use that with the Boston Celtics with their championship team. I'm from up north, by the way. Okay. <laughs> Eliza, the floor is yours. Oh, well, I wanted to share the words of Dr. Asa Hillier that we um, share in the book. And he says that I have never encountered any children in any group who are not geniuses. There is no mystery on how to teach them. The first thing you do is treat them like human beings. And the second thing you do is love them. And so we we believe that this work is steeped in supporting, building up students' humanity. You have to see them as human first before you can do anything if with them, beside them, for them. If they do not feel like you are invested and you truly see them, they they don't really want to have anything to do with you. I've seen that time and time again. <laughs> they really don't. <laughs> They'll do things out of compliance and sometimes they're not compliant, but um, we we want to um, just use the words of Dr. A.C. here to remind ourselves to treat children like human um, humans at all times. Um, so the, those are my final words. Thank you. Thank you. Treat them as human beings and love them. Well, that you, you're ending on a, on a fine note there, right? And then by reiterating and emphasizing this notion of love, this is important. We know that love conquers all, mm -hmm. right? Um, <clears throat> and, and so for the folks that are listening, I, you know, we really want to push y'all to embrace this, this message that you operate from a place of love and in doing so you, that there's intentionality in growing that love which which means understanding how to love and love better mm -hmm. right understanding your audience understanding who you're serving right we should be seeing ourselves as servant leaders and so in that, folks, we understand that there's a need to have practical tools and strategies to implement when it comes to our instruction and, and designing uh, classrooms, designing spaces that are culturally inclusive. And we're talking about literacy here. We, we have folks who are doing this work. And as they mentioned earlier, this, this is not new. The work that we're doing is not new. There's individuals who, who have laid out the path before us and we're just carrying on the torch and doing our part. And so I, I want to thank you all for your labor of love with this book, Revolutionary Love. I want to strongly encourage our listeners to support y'all by purchasing the book, by writing reviews, 
by sharing it on social media. Uh, it's a wonderful book. It has so many great exercises, um, so many moments in, in which you're pushed into self-reflection, which is extremely necessary. And, and as they mentioned, it's structured in a way where you're you're looking inside first and then looking out. All right. Checking yourself. Right. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. I'm going old school. Uh, and, and then looking at the systems the systems that are designed to oppress. I know some people don't like to hear that word, oppress, oppression, or whatnot, but you know, it's real talk. We're, we're gonna acknowledge the realities that our, our students are encountering, our black and brown students, uh, and by the same token, acknowledging the realities and the needs of our white students, as mentioned. So this book is for everybody. Grab a copy, write a review, support our people. Hey, where, where, can, where can our listeners follow you? And also, where should they be directed to purchase the, this book? Well, they can um, purchase it with Scholastic on Scholastic's website. Um, there's a discount for teachers, but you can also purchase it on Amazon as well. And um, it's found there. Also, you can follow myself at, at Dr. Braden 15 um, on Twitter. And you can follow me at Knowing AKA on Twitter. And you can follow me. I'm Natasha at N underscore Thornton one on Twitter. And you can follow our book's Instagram page. Um, we're on IG at Revolutionary Love Book. Well, I want to thank you all once again for taking the time to meet with me, to, to share your work. I'm really excited to continue to learn about you all individually. And as a collective, uh, I want to encourage you to stay strong, stay united, keep pushing forward. As I mentioned earlier, uh, strength in numbers and y'all are modeling that example for us that it's good to work together. It's good to collaborate. Mm -hmm. uh, it's good to share ideas and, and do publications. Like it's okay, you know, that we don't have to have all the spotlight as individuals, you know, we're, we're better when we're in community. And so thank you for being in our classroom, but also thank you for letting me into what you do. Thank you for schooling me on, on your, your text, on, on your approach, on the work that you're currently doing and the, the work that you have done. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm hopeful that this book will have the impact that you intend for it to have and know that you have a supporter here in me uh, and also Lorena. So, you know, from multicultural classroom to, to you all, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.